anything like it in the church, and I think there are reasons why we do not, and we'll talk about some of that later. But there's certainly a theme of judgment, even of discipline against God's people. Imagine that we'd sing a song like this. We have amazing grace and then singing to the same tune. A song of judgment. Amazing judgment, how sad the sound that dooms our wretched lot. We once were found, t'will soon be lost, had sight, but soon will not. Or second stands, amazing disobedience, how bad our ways. To anger our just God, we always turn away from Him. Yes, judgment is our lot. People would probably run from the church if we sang a song like that. And again, I think there's a reason why we do not. More on that later. But at this point, note that God knew Israel would betray Him. There's much here about the glory of God, the goodness of God. The justice of God against the enemies of God. And yet there is a reminder that Israel will sin. That she will fail Him. She will walk away. She will dishonor the Lord. Obedience then to God's Word is really central here to this song. And let's look at chapter 31 as we think on verse 14. Notice verse 14 of chapter 31. Just as we seek to summarize this song of Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourself in the tent of meeting that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. And the Lord appeared in the tent in the pillar of cloud. And the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise, and they will whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. They will do this. Verse 19, now therefore write this song. This is what they will do, now write this song. And teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths. That this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them. It will confront them as a witness. So verse 22, Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. And so chapter 32, as Keith has read this psalm for us, this song of Israel, like a national anthem, it serves as a perpetual warning of Israel to Israel. And I I don't think we should take it as God is predicting here the fate of each generation of Israelites, but it's a warning to each generation to not be that generation that despises Him, disobeys Him, walks away from Him, is disloyal. But that generation will come. 
one after another. And this brings us then back to the narrative portion at verse 44 of chapter 32. Chapter 32 and verse 44, where we look at Moses' final words to God's people here through the end of the book of Deuteronomy. We have looked at some time at Moses' life, and we want to just bring to close uh, the historical account of his life in these next couple of weeks. This is today and, Lord willing, next Lord's Day. But let's seek the Lord's help as we come to this text. Lord, we pray for understanding. We pray that you would help us in light of this context to understand these brief words and their application to us as a church. Move here within our hearts today and draw us to your word, your truth, your counsel to us in written words of life. Lord, may we embrace them and see, as Israel failed to see, that your word is life. We thank you for those who did see it, and we're thankful for those today who see it so clearly. Lord, may we as a church deepen and grow in our time in the Word together. Through Christ we pray. Amen. A helicopter pilot ascends in his chopper, then sets out for his destination. But as he flies, he unexpectedly encounters low-flying clouds, And suddenly, it seems without warning, is enveloped in a fog. The pilot becomes disoriented, loses all sense of direction. Those that describe that feeling, it's it's almost unimaginable, but you simply do not know which way is up. He does not know if he's moving, does not know if he's hovering in one place, if the copter is upright, or if it's veering off course at a dangerous angle about to crash. In that moment, there's a critical choice to be made. The pilot can go with his gut, go with what seems to be right, what his body and mind are telling him is the right way to fly this helicopter. Or, he can trust what the instrument panel tells him to do, even if it tells him to go in a direction his senses are saying, don't do that. Where will he listen? If he disregards the instrument panel and depends on his own senses, he will die. If he listens to what is given to him there, the truth on that instrument panel, he will live. And I think this illustrates in some sense Moses' point that he is stressing here to Israel. The words of God are like the instrument panel. They are the truth even when the fog doesn't permit us to see it. There are other times when life is crystal clear and we can see that God's word is true. But in any event, we must trust that panel and what it says. Not simply go with our gut, go with my heart, do what seems right and best. I think this is what Moses is saying, at least it illustrates it in some imperfect way, but in a different way, this is what God stresses in the parting words of Moses. We notice here, first of all, in verses 44 and following, that Moses is speaking to Israel, and he says essentially this, obedience to God's word is your life. In the fog of life, you must read the instrument panel and obey it. This word is your life. That seems to be the primary theme here of verses 44 to 47. 
Verse 44, Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was with him there as he announces this song. would have sounded very differently than our music, but it is a song. Victor Hamilton observes that the Hebrew Psalter, Israel's songbook, starts with an emphasis on obedience to the law. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. This ultimate songbook of Israel starts with an emphasis upon the law of God. On the other hand, Deuteronomy, Israel's preeminent book of law, ends with a song. So Hamilton says it this way, just as Israel must not divorce worship from the law, so also Israel must not divorce law from worship. Or I'd put it this way, God's people must simultaneously obey in song and sing in obedience. But let's come back to that earlier point. Why don't we sing negative songs like this? Why do we not sing songs to one another, you're going to fail? You will break God's law. In some way, there's appropriate aspects of some songs along those lines. But we don't sing this way. Why is that? Are we just being unbiblical? I don't think so. I think one of the reasons is that we are participants in a new covenant. And under the stipulations of this new covenant, the work of God for His people is the fact that all of God's people are given a heart of flesh. All of God's people are given the capacities to obey His Word through the indwelling Spirit. Now, the old covenant believer could obey God's Word as well, but there was something that just was not wound up and finished off. And that is the justice of the sinner and even the empowerment of the saved to live for God and to obey His Word. We have that ministry in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so we stand on a bit different grounds. In fact, new ground. As the Spirit has come to regenerate the believer and permit us to obey the Word of God. So I think it is right for us to sing that we have confidence that we will obey God's Word. And I think a song of Moses such as this is not something that we sing in, in all of its specificity. Under the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit, we do not always obey God's Word. I confess that I do not. But sin's power has been broken. We have in Christ the capacity to obey when Jesus paid the penalty of our sin on the cross, when He broke sin's power, He cleansed the believer, enabling us to obey His will in ways that old covenant believers simply did not have the power to do. And so how blessed we are to gather on the Lord's day, not to sing songs of pending judgment, but to say that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus and to speak of the indwelling Spirit who empowers us to bear the fruit of the Spirit and obey His Word in faithfulness. We stand on privileged ground. We sing of songs of Christ's victory over sin and death, over Satan and hell. 
We sing songs of liberation and expected hope. In fact, we sing, I think rightly, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but I am now found. I was blind, but now I see. Verse 45, and when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Let me draw attention just briefly here to the fact that parents are to teach God's Word to their children. We see that there in verse 46. Take this to heart. Command them to your children. We'll come back to more ideas here, but let me just stop here, park here for just a few moments. Parents know who are in Christ that one of my responsibilities, one of my joys in life is to teach God's Word to the next generation. This is a task that we take up. It's not an idea that somebody had and some, some families try it. It's our calling. It's our job. It's our office to teach that Word as a kingdom of priests to our children, to proclaim that Word to them. And just practically speaking, I don't intend to cover the whole topic here, but what are some of the tools of the trade? Some of the tools of the trade, parents and grandparents, and in some situations, uh, maybe it's, it's the um, uh, night where parents come and, and our singles watch children. I can't think of the name of it <laughs> at the moment, but whatever that thing is. Uh, when, they, when they come, even singles can read Bible storybooks to our children. There are superior options today compared to when I started fathering. There are tremendous Bible storybooks. Are they read in your home? Are you reading them to your children, to your grandchildren uh, in, in the night out for parents and times like that? Do this. Be reading Bible storybooks to the youngest of our children. And secondly, it's very obvious to us, but on Sunday morning, there are Bible classes that are structured for the age of our various children to teach them the Word of God. There they are learning week in and week out the doctrines of Scripture. On Wednesday night, there is further training in the Scriptures, the memorization of Scripture and the understanding of the basic doctrines and storyline of Scripture. As your children come to these things, as we bring them to these times, we are training them to know the Word of God. We are, in a sense, channeling this command. Teach these things. Command these things to your children. Just more generally, as children see our church life our family together, the example of adults who honor God's Word and speak God's truth. They're not embarrassed by the Bible, not embarrassed by the truths of Scripture, but realize that these truths are our life. Informal comments at home, in the church, as we rise up and lie down, as we walk along the road, as we sit down to eat together. I don't think that this is to be force-feeding 
our children the Scriptures. Like we're driving it through their head and making it some obnoxious thing that's just always there and they can't talk about anything else. It's not that. But it's more just through the warp and woof of life. Just through the informal saturation of our own minds and hearts in Scripture that we just ooze Scripture, ooze biblical concepts as we teach them to our children. This is all of our calling. This is not a pastoral call. This is a calling of every parent. And I think indeed of every grandparent as far as is possible to be teaching the Word of God and seeing that our children are taught the Word of God by getting them to church. And for this to happen in the home, there must be an environment of authority. If children are not brought to a place of obedience, they're then not in a condition where they will listen. There needs to be some respect for for parental direction and some guidance and some order in the home that they will actually pay attention that they'll actually listen. And I know some of you are in the trenches with a two-year-old right now or a four-year-old that doesn't want to listen to anything. Hang in there. Keep establishing an order in the home that permits an environment for you to teach the Word of God. And work with this church as we create that kind of environment as an assembly. Not one in which priority number one is that children are never fettered that they are simply left unbound to do whatever they want and express their direction and feelings and desires however they wish. No, rather a steerage to understand that there is authority that God has given for the good of His people and that in this place we will hear the word of the Lord. May we work together, environments of family, environments of church, to see this passage put into play and others like it. All of this starts, though, not with teaching your children, but by taking God's Word to heart yourself. And on this, I want to park a bit longer. Secondly, let's tease out three aspects of a Word-centered life that's revealed in these verses. As we notice this passage, notice first of all, highlighted here in yellow, take to heart all the words by which I'm warning you today. Take to heart God's Word. Take it to heart. Secondly, be careful to do all these words. And thirdly, know that this is no empty word, but your very life. Let's think on those three aspects. First of all, to take to heart all the words. This is an emphasis upon the willing reception and diligent understanding of God's Word. with, With heartfelt reception, to say, I want to hear the Word of God, and diligent understanding. That is not just what's obvious to us, but giving ourselves to understand God's Word in context, to know what it means, and to give ourselves to that understanding. So take it to heart. Our ears must be sensitive to God's Word, and our minds alert to its meaning. Someone called you and said, you have a long-lost relative, they've looked you up, found you, identified you, and died. And this relative has left you a million dollars. Now listen very carefully, I'm going to give you some instructions and a phone number by which you can claim this million dollars. 
I suggest that you be listening fairly carefully, right? You would you, burn a hole in your phone listening so hard. What are the facts that I must grab here? What must I do here? Now, we can't take that same kind of intensity as we listen to and read God's Word. But we must not treat God's Word flippantly, with dull mind, disinterest. But to recognize that when God's Word is sounded, whether it is in the preaching, teaching ministry of the church, or if we are reading it at home, wherever we encounter God's Word, may we sit up and take notice. Willingly receiving and diligently understanding God's Word. Secondly, be careful to do all the words that I command. This is to faithfully obey God's Word, very simply. The Hebrew here, be careful, means to guard, to preserve, to watch. That I'm going to willingly bring the Word in and understand it, but I am going to guard it as the counsel for my life, as the instrument panel that leads me through life. I'm going to do what this Word says, not simply listen to it and understand it. We see this famously in the book of James where he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. There is a deception that can hit all of us. The deception that because I'm hearing and understanding what God says, I'm good. No, it's to lead to doing lest we deceive ourselves. 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, after speaking against false teachers and false doctrine, and Paul saying to Timothy, do not permit false doctrine to exist in the church. Work it out. He then says this, and it's a shot at the false teachers, but it's a positive toward the church at Ephesus. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That's the opposite of the false teachers. We have these ideas that we want everybody to buy. Somehow hoping that your money ends up in my pocket as a teacher, is their thinking. But we want everybody to understand these ideas. Paul says, no, the end is not simply a knowledge of facts, but a knowledge of the truth which leads to love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. There is a moral component to it. Thirdly, this is no empty word, but your very life. It is your very life. To treasure the value of God's word as life-giving. So we willingly receive it, diligently understand it, faithfully obey it, and treasure it as a unique, singular value, a life-giving source. It's no empty word. This Hebrew word speaks of emptiness, unprofitability, worthlessness. It has value. God's word is gold to the believer. Obedience to God's word was literally Israel's life-sustaining strength in the promised land. And for us, God's Word grows us. It lights the way as we persevere in the faith. It leads us in paths of life. And it delivers us from paths of futility and death. God's Word was life to Adam and Eve. And it is life to us. 
and it ever will be. This word is life-giving. Let's think of this, uh, not because the point is not clear, but because I think we struggle at the place of application. We acknowledge, say, on a checklist, a test, a multiple-choice test, we acknowledge this truth. God's Word is very valuable. It is life-giving. We know this. The problem comes at the level of application so often for us as God's people. Are you struggling in your marriage? Is your relationship as husband and wife difficult? Perhaps at times you would say even miserable. Or maybe you're counseling someone who's in that position. This relationship is terrible. I don't like it. Let me say to you, or we may say to such individuals, this word is your life. This is your life. This truth that God has revealed You're probably tempted to think that life is my mate changing or finding the right seminar or something along those lines. Remember, this word is your life. And let me apply it with just one example. In marital conflict, God's word says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's what you're not to do. And this is your life. This is life-giving, life-sustaining to not speak this way. And remember, as New Covenant believers, we have the ministry of the Spirit of God which enables us to obey what God has said and not to talk like this. To let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths. Do not, verse 30, grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, all hatred. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's your life. There is life in those words. They're not halfway decent suggestion. They're your life. Death is in the power of the tongue. It can be used for life or death. Choose life. Or to stay within the same book, Ephesians 5, Wives, submit to your husbands and honor them. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Again, these words are not halfway decent suggestions a few people have tried with some measure of success. These words are your very life. They are your life. Choose life. Listen to the instrument panel. Follow it to life. And couples can say, we've tried it. It just isn't working for us. Come back to the three points. Take heed. Receive and understand what God has said. Seek to obey it, not write it off. And treasure it 
as your life. This counsel. Maybe you find yourself today in a season of intense suffering. Battling with disease. Battling with the betrayal of a friend or loved one. Financial trouble that is beyond your capacity to break out of. Loneliness. Loss. God's Word is your very life. Know this and treasure it that way. Know that what He counsels is our life. If you found yourself in a cave, lost, no light anywhere, completely disoriented, and as you're feeling around in this cave, you put your hand on a flashlight. It's the most obvious thing in the world to test it and see if it works, right? You're going to turn it on. That's our life. We're lost without Christ. We are in darkness and do not know the way. We don't know how to talk to each other. We don't know how to suffer. But we turn on the flashlight and it works. And it illumines the darkness. It shows us the way to freedom and deliverance. Turn it on. Trust it. Believe in it. We would so quickly trust that light in a dark cave. We don't so quickly trust God's Word. The orientation that takes His Word and says, hmm, that's interesting. I'm going to see if this applies to my life. I'll see if it works. I'll try it for a while. Or I think there's a better way. None of that. It is your life. You must heed the Word of God. We must to live. And for those with us today, if you're here and do not know Christ as your Savior, there is no sense that God has forgiven you of your sin. You walk in the darkness of unforgiveness. You know that you have broken God's law and you don't know what the answer is to that. This book is your life. This word from God is your life. This word will tell you how sins can be forgiven. What Christ has done to wash away the sins of His people and how we can come to Him for that gift of eternal life in Christ. This book is your life. How many stories we have heard of people that did not know God, maybe even were afraid of the Bible. Like one man's story that I heard, he was told, don't read that book. It will mess up your mind. It will take you down a wrong path. Don't read it. And so he read one chapter. And he like literally analyzed his brain and said, I'm okay. I don't think think I've lost my sanity yet. And he read a second chapter and another one until he had read the New Testament and trusted Christ as a Savior. This book is your life. Don't fear it. But don't stand in judgment over it. Just receive it. Hear the word of the Lord and see what it says and its beauty. And Eden Baptist Church, God's revealed word contained in Scripture is our life as a church. Believe me, there are better preachers and teachers in this world than you'll find in this church. Better educated, smarter thinkers, superior communicators, more experienced, more naturally interesting But do not undervalue the fact that you are part of a church that is committed to unfolding the meaning of God's Word. Seeking to explain what it says, what it means in its context, what it teaches in the broader scope of Scripture and its practical application in your life. Rejoice at least in that. 
that God's Word speaks in this church. Forsaking the assembly where God's Word is taught as foolishness. Failing to read God's Word consistently in private devotion is foolishness. This book is life for God's people. Choose life. Well, there are some of Moses, these are some of Moses' parting words to Israel. We'll look at more later, Lord willing. But for now, God has some last words for Moses. So Moses says to Israel, obedience to God's word is your life. God now speaks to Moses and and illustrates that disobedience to God's word is your undoing. It can be your death, it can be your undoing. Verse 48, that very day the Lord spoke to Moses, go up this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession. Gain our bearings again. You see Jerusalem, Jericho, and Mount Nebo. Mount Nebo on the east side of Jordan, right at the top of the Dead Sea. And from this height, God will deal with Moses. Moses had gone with his brother Aaron up Mount Hor. First he had gone up Mount Sinai to receive the law, and then up Mount Hor with Aaron to defrock him of his priestly robes, to place those robes upon Eliezer, his successor. And Moses tarried on Mount Hor until Aaron died. Nebo is now the last mountain Moses will climb up. And he will not climb down. For God says in verse 50, and die on the mountain which you go up. Be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. To be gathered to your people is an ancient figure of speech meaning to die. To join the relatives who have gone before. Die on that mountain. That's strange. Die on that mountain is indeed an imperative. He's telling him, go die. It seems like a passive idea, but here he's he's so commanding him to do this that it's not a command to kill himself, of course, but it's a command, a strong directive. And the reason that Moses must die, verse 51, is because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kedesh in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. Don't keep leading. You are to go die. And remember, this is the discipline that has been assigned to you because of that debacle that's recorded in Numbers chapter 20. God commanded Moses to speak to this ledge of rock so that water would come forth to water Israel as they're wandering in the desert. And what did Moses do? He struck the rock twice. Water came out by God's grace, but Moses was disciplined. Remember, there were three aspects to his discipline. The first is that he rebuked Israel without God's counsel. Time after time, God had rebuked Israel in this situation of complaining. But God had said nothing about that this time. And Moses, in a sense, stood in God's place and said, if you won't rebuke them, I will. And he gave them a tongue lashing, which they totally deserved. But it was according to his design, not God's. 
Secondly, he exalted himself as a miracle worker. Not sure how much he meant this, but he came across as if he was the one who would bring water from the rock. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock, he asked Israel. Before this, it had always been, stand back and watch God. Now he's saying, drawing attention to himself as the mediator. Thirdly, against God's explicit command, Moses struck the rock twice rather than speaking to it. He just broke God's law, his counsel. In these ways, Moses broke faith with God. Amazingly gifted, amazingly faithful man. Lord willing, we'll look at that more next week, at the story of Moses' life, the trajectory of that life. But in full sight of the nation, that's the emphasis here of the text, in the full sight of the nation, he treated God like one of the weak deities of the pagans, failing to treat Yahweh as holy. As with the pagan priests, Moses sought to do God's work for him. You won't rebuke them? I will. I will bring water from the rock. I will rebuke Israel. I will set the situation straight. And he became like one of the priests of the pagan gods that manipulate the gods to do what they want them to do or stand in for the gods to accomplish what they want to accomplish. Because of who Moses was, because of where we stand in salvation history, the significance of this betrayal demanded such severe discipline against Moses, who broke faith. Verse 52, God continues and qualifies, For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. You'll see it, you won't touch it. Assuming it was a clear day, Moses could look to his right. So he's looking across the Jordan River Valley. He could look to his right and see the Lake Galilee. Looking off to his left, he could see far into the Negev. And looking straight across, though he may not have been able to identify this spot, he could see the mountain range on which was Mount Moriah, where Abraham had centuries earlier offered Isaac in sacrifice. And as Moses' eyes scanned the topography before him from Nebo's heights, he could not imagine what God would do on Mount Moriah in future days. Yet we can conclude that Moses would meet the son who was sacrificed on Mount Moriah, Jesus Christ. We know that He's met Him. How do we know that? Because there is a mountain in Israel on which Moses' feet have touched. In Matthew 17, Moses and Elijah appeared in glorified form, communing with Jesus on a mountain there. And it's just a tantalizing hint that all that Moses had lost in entrance into the promised land was long forgotten as he has entered into the presence of God and fellowship there with Christ on that mountain. How did Moses 
withstand? How did he not break apart with grief at being denied access to the land that he had sought tirelessly to enter for the past 40 years? He doesn't break apart because his eyes are set further than the land in front of him. As we find in Hebrews 11 and verse 26, he was looking with hope to the final reward. And even in this land, in a preview, he stood with Christ on another mountain in the land, fellowshipping there until he was called back to heaven and until one day on a new earth we will stand with him. But for now, as great a man as Moses was, his final discipline reminds us that the wages of sin is death. Disobedience to God's word is not life, it's death. If it's not physical death, then it's spiritual death. Disobedience to God's word is death. God seeks a people who will tremble at his word, Isaiah 66.2. He seeks a people who will love his truth. 2 Thessalonians 2, when we rightly tremble, sometimes with reverent respect, other times with delight, we please God and we know God. Moses did not tremble in Numbers 20 and he was barred from setting foot in the land for now. Mount Nebo would not be, however, the last mountain, but the transfiguration and someday the new earth. So Moses' sin blocked his entrance to Canaan, but due to God's saving mercy, it did not block Moses' entrance to glory. And this is hope for us as sinners who do prove disloyal at times from the Lord, to the Lord. We do break His word. We do go our own way. We work it out in the fog without His word, all of us. But on Mount Moriah, on a cross between two others, our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, died in the place of His people to die paying their sin debt. And there we find our hope. Not in our obedience, not in our earning our way to God, but in what Christ has done to pay the penalty of sin. The Lamb of God sacrificed for sinners. The Lamb of which we have sung today as a church. Rising from the dead and giving life to His people. This life comes by responding to the message that God has revealed. The word that He has given and trusting it. This word, those, anyone, if you're separated from Christ, this word is your life. It is the instruction, it is the truth that will save your soul from hell, from judgment, from destruction, and give you life in God. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, have trusted in His grace, in the provision of His death and resurrection, this Word is our life. It doesn't just get us to heaven. It is light and counsel and wisdom for every step of the way. We don't know it well enough. We don't obey it well enough. But this word is our very life. May we treasure it that way. Let's pray. We are thankful, Father, for this reminder 
of the connection between life and death and your word. We are mindful that you are not a cheap God, a silly God, a God who simply overlooks sin because you are too self-indulged to bother. But you are God of pristine justice, holiness, sovereignty, ultimately judgment. We praise you as well that you are God who loves the sinner and has provided the means of salvation in Christ, the means of salvation in Christ. We praise you for this. Pray that you draw to that light those who know not Christ among us. May they come to the Word. May they read the Word, hear the Word, embrace its truth. Lord, I pray for those of us who do, may we delight in it. For this word is our very life. It is your truth revealed to us that gave us life originally, that sustains our life, and that is providing for eternal life. May we love your revealed word. Through Christ we pray.